Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our latest season, Woods and Fields, Dark and Wicked, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. This season has been a long time in the making, dating back to my childhood from where some of these stories come. We'll be taking you along with us to America's forests, farms, and fields with tales of horror, homicide, cults and curses, calamities and cannibalism, massacres and mysterious disappearances, and more magic, mayhem, sinners, and spirits than we've ever offered before. This is episode number 11, the second in a two-part series within a series on the legends, lore, history, and hauntings of the Donner Party the most infamous story in the history of the American West. Most people know how this story ends with cannibalism in the mountains, but most don't know how they ended up snowbound in the mountains or about the acts of bravery, courage, sacrifice, and incredible horror that took place before most of the Donner Party made it out alive. We'll change that with the second part of the story, but we do want to warn you, This episode contains discussions of violence, death, and cannibalism that may not be suitable for all listeners. So if you go ahead with it, you can't say we didn't warn you. When the first sections of the Donner Party wagon trains reached Truckee Lake, many of the settlers did all they could to make it over the mountain pass to California, but were driven back by snow, ice, and storms. They eventually surrendered returning to the lake where they began building shelters to make it through the storm. They still believed that when the weather passed, they'd be able to continue their journey, but they wouldn't. They didn't know it yet, but they were trapped. Behind the group taking shelter at Truckee Lake, further down the trail, the Donners were still struggling to catch up. The only sign of the group at the lake they had seen had been when two riders had come to warn them that the pass was completely blocked with snow. Injured and exhausted, George Donner decided that his group would make camp where they were, along Alder Creek, about six miles from Truckee Lake. They did their best to build rough shelters, but the wind and cold prevented their completion. They ended up in tents and lean-tos buried under the snow for warmth. And it wasn't hard to get buried. The snow fell on them for the next eight days. They slaughtered whatever cattle they could find. Most had wandered off and died in the snow and preserved the meat and used the hides to insulate their shelters. George and Jacob Donner had hoped to arrive in California with plenty of time to prepare for the spring planting season. Now they wondered if they would get to California at all. The immigrants at Truckee Lake had no time to worry about what was happening to the Donners. They were trying to keep themselves alive. By now, very little food remained from the supplies that Edwin Stanton had brought back from Sutter's Fort. The oxen began to die and their carcasses were frozen and stacked. Truckee Lake was not yet frozen, but the pioneers were unfamiliar with catching lake trout. William Eddy killed a bear, but had little luck after that. The Reed and Eddy families had lost almost everything. Margaret Reed had promised to pay double when they got to California for the use of three oxen from the Graves and Breen families. Franklin Graves charged Eddie $25, normally the cost of two healthy oxen, for the carcass of an ox that had starved to death. 
Desperation grew in the camp, and some reason that individuals might succeed in navigating the pass where the wagons couldn't. In small groups, they made several attempts, but each time they returned defeated. Another severe storm lasting more than a week covered the area so deeply that the few cattle and horses they had left, which were the only remaining work animals and food, died and were lost in the snow. The hope they might manage to survive was fading fast. But James Reed's family, even those who had never liked him, there was a small hope that remained he was still alive. They knew he would do anything to save his wife and family. And James Reed was alive. In fact, he'd made it to Sutter's Ford in terrible condition on October 28th. When he arrived, he found not only a recovered Big Bill McCutcheon, but other friends from the trail, like Edwin Bryant, William Russell, and others. They immediately made plans for a rescue and left in early November with a string of pack horses to find the Donner Party. Rita McCutcheon mistakenly believed that the party had made it through the pass and was still moving in the direction of Sutter's Fort. They had no idea at this point that their families were stranded in the mountains. The rescue party pressed on through mud, rain, and finally snow and ice. They made it to within 10 miles of the summit before they had to turn back. The storms were too fierce and the snow too deep to make it to the other side. Reed would keep trying, but it would be almost nearly three months before a rescue party finally reached the lake. Well, why so long? Because Reed and John Sutter had done some estimating. Based on the number of cattle the settlers had left when Reed left the party, they believed the food they had would last for weeks, which took away some of the urgency of the rescue. But of course they were wrong. Most of the cattle were gone. What was left would not even last part of the winter, let alone into the spring. Trapped in the camp, Patrick Breen began keeping a diary of the events that occurred in the camp. It was written on eight small sheets of paper, poorly spelled and with no punctuation, but it is one of the only written records that exists. Most of the writing is about the weather, marking the storms and how much snow had fallen, but he gradually began to include references to God and religion in his entries. Breen had a bad habit of believing he was the only one in the camp righteous enough to speak to God. But if this was true, God wasn't listening because things in the camp soon went from bad to worse. Life at Truckee Lake was miserable. The cabins were cramped and filthy and it snowed so much that people were unable to go outside for days. Diet soon consisted of oxhide, strips of which were boiled to make a glue-like jelly. Ox and horse bones were boiled so repeatedly to make soup, they became brittle and they would crumble upon chewing. They caught and ate mice that strayed into their cabins. Many of the people at Truckee Lake were soon so weakened they spent most of their time in bed. Things were just as bad, perhaps even worse, in the Donner camp. News reached the lake camp that Jacob Donner and three of their hired men had died. George Donner's hand had become so infected and he was now so sick that he was unable to leave his tent. The deep snow made gathering firewood even more difficult. What wood they found was usually wet. They cut off the tops of pine trees that were sticking out of the snow, but the green wood filled their shelters with smoke. Now they were hungry and cold. 
At the lake camp, Margaret Reed managed to save enough scraps of food for a Christmas pot of soup to the delight of her children, but by January, they were facing starvation and considered eating the oxides that served as their roof. In a desperate attempt at escape between snowstorms, Margaret, Virginia, and Milt Elliott attempted to walk out through the pass, reasoning it would be better to try to bring food back than sit and watch the children starve. They were gone for four days in the snow before they had to turn back. When they returned, their cabin had been torn apart by the others. There was nothing left to eat but the oxides, but soon that was gone too. The Graves family, who I dislike almost as much as the Breens, came by to collect on the debt owed by the Reeds and took the oxides off the roof. And that was all the family had left to eat. Well, members of the lake camp began to die. The first was Teamster Augustus Spitzer, and then Bayless Williams, who worked for the Reeds. His sister Eliza would soon follow. Charles Stanton, knowing that the situation was dire, began making snowshoes with Franklin Graves. They fashioned them out of wood from the wagons and rawhide laces. Charles Stanton, knowing the situation was dire, began making snowshoes with Franklin Graves. They fashioned them out of wood from the wagons and rawhide laces. Stanton wrote a note to Tamsin Donner in the Alder Creek camp, asking to borrow the family's compass for a planned rescue expedition. But the expedition had to leave before the compass arrived, taking advantage of a break in the weather. On December 16th, a party of 17 men, women, and children set out on foot in an attempt to cross the mountain pass. The expedition would forever be known as the Forlorn Hope. It was a last ditch effort to make it out and send back help for the survivors, but they also knew it might be a suicide mission. As evidence of how grim their choices were, four of the 10 men in the expedition were fathers. Two members of the party were children and three of the five women were mothers who left behind young children to be cared for by other women. After the departure of the snowshoe party, two thirds of those left at Truckee Lake were children. Mrs. Graves was in charge of eight, and Lavina Murphy and Eleanor Eddy took care of nine others together. The snowshoe party included Franklin Graves, his two oldest daughters, Marianne and Sarah, and Sarah's husband, Jay Fosdick. Amanda McCutcheon, whose husband was Big Bill, was also in the party. She left her daughter behind. There were also eight members of the Murphy family, Harriet, the widow of William Pike, who'd been accidentally shot, Sarah, her husband, William Foster, and the two children were Lemuel and William Murphy, ages 13 and 10. William Eddy was in the party. He left behind his wife, son, and daughter. And there were several single men, Patrick Dolan, Dutch Charlie Berger, Antonio, a teamster hired at Fort Laramie, Charles Stanton, and the two Miwoks, Louis and Salvador. The forlorn hope packed lightly taking what had become six days rations, a rifle, a blanket each, a hatchet, and some pistols. They were dressed in thick layers, hoping to stay as warm as possible. They started out across the lake, and two of those without snowshoes, Charles Berger and 10-year-old William Murphy, turned back early on. Other members of the party fashioned a pair of snowshoes for Lemuel Murphy on the first night from one of the pack saddles they were carrying. The snowshoes proved to be awkward but effective on the climb. But the members of the party were half-starved and weak, which made the hike difficult. And by the third day, most were snowblind, but recovered. 
Charles Stanton, though, did not. Blinded in terrible pain, he fell far behind. He often stumbled into camp long after the others each night. He knew he was slowing the group down, adding to the danger. On the sixth day, he stayed in camp, smoking his pipe next to the fire. Marianne Graves tried to get him up and moving, but he smiled and just told her he'd be coming along soon. He never left the camp. The courageous man who'd performed acts of heroism and kindness to feed his fellow traveler sacrificed himself to save the others. Months later, his body was found frozen, still sitting by the cold fire, pipe in his hands. Without Stanton to guide them, the group became lost and confused, starting off in the wrong direction. They kept walking, though. Their food was gone, and they were cold and starving. All the men, except for Eddie and the two Miwoks, wanted to give up and return to Truckee Lake. Eddie refused, and the women all agreed with him. They would continue the mission or die. They had starving children back at the camp who were counting on them to make it. By then, they had gone without any food for three days. They needed a way to survive. It was Patrick Dolan who first suggested that one of the group be sacrificed to feed the others. He asked for a volunteer and then suggested they create a lottery. William Eddy had a better idea. Why not a duel where the loser feeds the others? Well, they finally compromised. They would keep marching until one of them dropped dead. And the march continued. A blizzard finally forced them to stop. They made camp, built a fire, and likely waited to see who would die first. Well, it turned out to be the teamster, Antonio. In his sleep, he fell into the fire and was so exhausted, he didn't wake up. As shelter from the storm, the group dug down deep into the snow with their fire at the bottom of a pit. They struggled to stay warm, huddled around it. Franklin Graves, the oldest member of the group, had been growing weaker, and he now told William Eddy that he was dying. His daughter, Sarah, and Marianne were by his side, and he told them they should eat him after he died so they could survive. When he died, though, his body was placed outside the shelter in the snow next to Antonio. No one was brave enough to start eating the dead. Not yet. As the blizzard continued, Patrick Dolan began to rant deliriously, stripped off his clothes, and ran into the woods. These were classic signs of hypothermia. When he returned, Eddie and the others overpowered him and held him down until he became quiet. He died later that night. Finally, by the following day, the body of Patrick Dolan, perhaps because he wasn't related or worked for anyone there, was butchered and strips of his flesh were cooked over the fire. Only Eddie and the two Miwoks refused to eat. A few days later, though, mad with hunger, they'd finally give in. Those members of the Donner Party were not the first or the last people to resort to cannibalism to avoid death. It was considered savage behavior, but it occurred more than society wanted to admit. The brutal winter of 1609 at the Jamestown colony of Virginia came to be known as the Starving Time. When hundreds of the colonists perished, the survivors were forced into cannibalism. Long before the Donner Party became stranded in the mountains, officers and crews of ships practiced what was called the Custom of the Sea, which was separate from maritime law. It allowed the practice of cannibalism among shipwrecked survivors by the drawing of lots to see who was to be killed and eaten so the others might live. The forlorn hope did not resort to cannibalism because they wanted to. 
It was either eat the dead or die. But it wasn't long before things became a little crazy. The survivors stayed at the site, which they later dubbed the Camp of Death, for the next four days, eating and regaining their strength. Sarah Murphy Foster and Harriet Murphy Pike tried to feed a little of Dolan's flesh to their little brother, the mule, but he could not eat. He died a short time later. One evening, Sarah was sitting by the fire, grieving the loss of her brother, and looked up to see some of the others roasting pieces of his body on sticks. She became hysterical. After rest, they set off again, searching for the trail. Meat had been stripped from the dead and dried for the days ahead, although they took care that no one would have to eat his or her relatives. The survivors marched, exhausted and weak, looking like living skeletons. Their feet were so damaged they left a trail of blood in the snow. When their food ran out, they took apart their snowshoes and ate the rawhide strips. Eddie boiled a spare pair of moccasins to make soup. Jay Fosdick was in terrible shape. He was starting to fall behind and Sarah was unable to help him catch up. Before he could die though, William Foster began acting strangely. He was showing signs of delirium, proposed killing Luis and Salvador for food. They were Indians, he reasoned, their lives didn't count. Well, Eddie was violently opposed to this. That night he warned the two men and they wisely and quietly left camp. Jay Fosdick died that night, leaving only seven members of the Forlorn Hope. The next morning, Eddie decided to try and hunt. He still had a rifle and some ammunition and Marianne Graves went with him to look for game. When he sighted a large deer, Eddie was too weak to even aim the rifle. Marianne had to steady it for him. He fired and he killed it. Elated, the two of them drank its blood and ate some of the meat raw before butchering the deer and carrying it back to camp. When they returned with the deer meat, they found Fosdick's body had already been cut apart and partially consumed. Only his wife had refused to eat him. They continued to march, climbing steep cliff walls and breaking new trail. Soon the deer meat was gone and William Foster came to Eddie and proposed killing Amanda McCutcheon and eating her. Eddie was shocked by the idea and refused to allow it. Foster then suggested one of the other women who didn't have children and Eddie walked away in disgust. He warned the women of Foster's plans and Foster attacked him. Eddie easily fought him off and would have killed him if the women hadn't begged him not to. He warned Foster that if he made any attempt to hurt anyone in the group, he'd kill him before he could. After several more days, they came across Salvador and Luis on the trail. The Miwoks had not eaten for about nine days and were close to death. Eddie wanted to let them die in peace, but Foster wouldn't wait. He shot the pair and butchered their bodies. That night, Eddie only ate dried grass, refusing to eat the flesh of the Miwoks. And from that night on, only Foster's wife would camp with him. The others kept a safe distance away believing that starvation had driven the man insane. Finally, on January 12th, the Forlorn Hope discovered an Indian trail in the woods and decided to follow it. They soon stumbled into a Native American settlement, but looked so horrific that the villagers initially ran away from them in panic. 
when things calmed down, the Native Americans gave them food, mostly acorns and pine nuts. And after a few days, Eddie continued on alone with help from some of the people in the village. He made it to the winter settlements at the edge of the Sacramento Valley. A hurriedly assembled rescue party found the other six survivors of the Forlorn Hope on January 17th. Their journey from Truckee Lake had taken 33 days. And soon, word began to spread about the fate of the Donner Party. While the country was learning about what had happened to the Donner Party, nothing was changing at the two miserable camps in the Sierra Nevadas. The immigrants were doing everything they could to survive. At Alder Creek, the Donners continued to search for the cattle that had been lost in the snow. They dug and stuck poles in the ground looking for carcasses, but found nothing. Margaret Reed, a woman who had once suffered migraines because of stress, had heroically cared for her children and friends. She'd been forced to kill the family's pet dog, Cash, to make a soup to feed everyone. The Breens were hiding oxen meat they'd preserved and refused to share it with anyone else in the camp, which was their typical behavior. Levina Murphy had been dying since Christmas, but was hanging on to her life to care for the children that had been left for her by the snowshoe party, including baby Catherine Pike, who had still been nursing when her mother had left. Levina was spoon feeding her water and wheat flour, trying to keep her alive. Three of her grandchildren were seriously ill, and it was believed they wouldn't last much longer. Lavina went to the Breens to beg for food, not for herself, but for the children. But they turned her away. On January 27th, it was learned in the camp that Philippine Kiesberg's infant son had died. Born on the trail, he was less than six months old. On February 2nd, Harriet McCutcheon, Amanda and Big Bill's daughter, died without her parents. Her body had been infested with lice and her agonizing screams could be heard all over the camp. Near the end, her arms had been tied down so she would stop scratching herself until she bled. Her screaming got louder and then stopped. Years later, little Patty Reed would say that Harriet's death had been a blessing. Two days later, Margaret Eddy died. Her mother, Eleanor, had been nursing her, but was so sick and starving herself that she had no more milk to give her. When the baby died, Eleanor died with her. Her husband was still many miles away in California. The next day, Augustus Spitzer died and Milt Elliott soon followed him to the grave. Milt had been beloved by everyone in the camp and the Reeds were devastated by his death. Virginia Reed wept through the night over Milt's death. She would later write that her best friend in camp was gone. When word began to spread in California about the Donner Party, James Reed, of course, heard the news. He had no idea the situation was so dire and immediately began organizing a rescue. Unfortunately, all the military and most of the able-bodied men in California were then engaged in the war with Mexico. This also meant that roads were blocked and supplies were unavailable. Only three men responded to a call for volunteers to rescue the Donner Party. Reed was stuck over in San Jose until February because of regional uprisings and general confusion. He spent that time speaking with other pioneers and acquaintances. The people of San Jose responded by creating a petition to appeal to the U.S. Navy to assist those trapped at Truckee Lake. In the midst of the general uproar, two local newspapers reported that members of the Snowshoe Party 
had resorted to cannibalism to stay alive. This was the first mention of cannibalism and the Donner Party, but it wouldn't be the last. On January 31st, a rescue party called the First Relief, which included a weak William Eddy, who didn't make it very far, left from the Sacramento Valley. Rain and a swollen river forced several delays, but they made steady progress through the snow and storms to cross the summit to Truckee Lake. They arrived at the camp on February 17th, and as they neared the cabins that Eddie told them were there, they began to shout. A woman appeared from a hole in the snow, stared at the men, and asked them if they'd come from heaven. The first relief doled out small portions of food, concerned that it might kill the emaciated survivors if they ate too much. All the cabins were buried in snow. The oxide roofs had begun to rot and the smell was overpowering. The cabins were infested with lice and covered in filth. 13 people at the camp were dead and their bodies had been loosely buried in the snow near the cabin roofs. Some of the immigrants were nearly insane. The rescue party visited all the shelters and cabins, passing out small amounts of dried beef and biscuits. On February 20th, another child died, little Catherine Pike, who was less than a year old. She died in the arms of her grandmother, Lavina Murphy. Three members of the rescue party, Reason Tucker, John Rhodes, and Sep Motry, packed up supplies and trekked to the Donner camp at Alder Creek. The Donners were starving, but fortunately, no one else had died. George's arm had turned gangrenous, but he was too sick to move. Tamsin refused to leave his side. The rescue party brought four children and three adults back to Truckee Lake, including Aletha and Leanna Donner. The First Relief spent the next day trying to decide which immigrants to take back with them, really, which ones were strong enough to make the journey. There were 23 who were chosen to go leaving behind 21 people at the lake and 12 at the Alder Creek camp. Among those chosen to return with the rescuers were Margaret Reed and her four children, Edward and Simon Breen, William Murphy and his sister Mary, Philippine Kiesberg and her daughter Ada, John Denton, a driver, and little Naomi Pike, who was wrapped in a blanket and carried down the mountain by John Rhodes, one of the rescuers. The group set off, but soon ran into trouble. The weak and starving immigrants didn't have the energy to move fast and had trouble in the snow. Patty and Tommy Reed were soon too weak to cross the snowdrifts, and no one was strong enough to carry them. Margaret now faced the agonizing predicament of accompanying her two children to Bear Valley and watching her two youngest be taken back to Truckee Lake without a parent. She made rescuer Aquila Glover swear on his honor as a Freemason that he would return for her children. He swore on his honor and his life, and mother and children said their goodbyes. As they left, Patty told Margaret, Well, mother, if you never see me again, do the best you can. When Glover arrived back at the lake camp with Patty and Tommy, he was forced to take them to the Breen cabin for safety, but... No surprise, the Breens, the good Christians they were, flatly refused to let them into the cabin. But after Glover left more food, the children were grudgingly admitted. The first relief marched on, but were soon out of food. They anxiously awaited the arrival at the first food stash during the descent, only to find that it had been broken into by animals, leaving them without food for four more days. After struggling on the walk over the pass, one of the men, John Denton, collapsed. 
He could go no further, and he knew he was a burden to the party. He sat down by a fire and asked Reason Tucker to send help for him when he made it down. Tucker promised he would, but knew the young man would be dead before the first relief reached the end of the trail. As they continued to walk, the most pathetic of the party was Philippine Keysburg. She struggled along carrying her daughter, but simply couldn't keep up. She promised money and a gold watch to anyone who could help her, but no one could. They had their own children, a trail to break, or like John Rhodes, was already carrying a child. At some point during the night, Ada Keysburg died. Philippine was inconsolable when she woke to find her daughter dead. She refused to leave her body behind, but Reason Tucker was able to convince her to keep moving, and he sadly buried the little girl in the snow. After several days more travel through difficult country, the rescuers grew very concerned that the children would not survive, but the children were more clever than they gave them credit for. At some point in the night, some of the children ate the buckskin fringe from one of the rescuers' pants and the shoelaces of another. It wasn't much, but it kept them going. But better news was coming. Before the first relief had made it to Truckee Lake, James Reed had managed to organize a second effort to rescue the Donner Party. It was financed by early California settlers George C. Yaunt, who had heard about the plight of the Donner Party and began having distressing dreams about a struggling group of starving pioneers in the snow. Yaunt began calling on others and managed to raise $500 for Reed's second relief. On their way up the mountain, members of the first relief who'd been sent ahead to scout for food encountered Reed and his party, which included Bill McCutcheon. He'd recently reunited with his wife, Amanda, but was dismayed to learn that his daughter, Harriet, had died. Reed stayed up all that night and baked bread to hand out to his family and the other survivors who were descending the mountain with the first relief. They'd only traveled about four miles on February 27th when Reed and his men met the other party on their way down. Is Mrs. Reed with you? He called out. If she is, tell her Mr. Reed is here. When Margaret heard the news, she collapsed into the snow, overwhelmed with relief. Virginia, though, pushed past everyone and threw herself into her stepfather's arms. Their reunion was short, though. Margaret and the children needed to get down the mountain to safety, and Reed was anxious to get to the stranded settlers who'd been left behind, including his two youngest children. They were soon on their way up the mountain. The first relief continued on with only one more fatality. William Hook, Jacob Donner's stepson, broke into the food supplies and fatally gorged himself. He was buried in a shallow grave on March 1st, dead from heart failure. The rest of the group continued on to Bear Valley and the winter settlements. Virginia Reed later wrote, I really thought I had stepped over into paradise. She was amused when one of the young men who tended the stock in the Mule Creek camp asked her to marry him, especially since she was 13 years old and recovering from starvation. She turned him down. On March 4th, the First Relief arrived at Sutter's Fort and were given quarters or invited to stay with families in the area. The Reeds were taken in by the Sinclair family who had a large ranch on the American River. They were fed, cared for, and slowly nursed back to health. Margaret, though, continued to worry about her husband and her two missing children. During the first week of March, the temperature dropped and a cold, icy rain began to fall. Margaret knew that if it was raining in the valley, then it was snowing in the mountains. 
On March 1st, the second relief party arrived at Truckee Lake. The snow had started to melt and the tops of the cabins were now visible. The rescuers went from cabin to cabin, handing out food, and Reed was reunited with his daughter Patty and son Tommy, who didn't recognize him at first. An inspection of the Breen cabin revealed a horrible stench, but all of them were alive. The Murphy cabin, though, that was another story. Lavina Murphy was still caring for her eight-year-old son, Simon, and the two children of the Eddies and the Fosters. She had deteriorated mentally and was nearly blind. The children were listless and had not been cleaned in days. Louis Kiesberg had moved into the cabin and could barely move due to his injured foot, which had never properly healed. No one at Truckee Lake had died during the time between the departure of the first and the arrival of the second relief parties, but Patrick Breen told Reed about a disturbing visit the week before from Lavina Murphy, who said her family was considered eating Mild Elliott. And apparently she'd made good on this threat because Reed and McCutcheon later found Milt's mutilated and half-eaten body. The last cabin visited by Reed and McCutcheon belonged to the Graves family. Elizabeth Graves and her starving children had lost so much weight, they were unrecognizable. After that, Reed helped his friend find the body of his daughter Harriet in the snow. They dug a grave for her on some land where the snow had melted. On March 2nd, Reed and McCutcheon went to the Alder Creek camp of the Donners, leaving four men behind at the lake. Reed had already sent two men ahead to check on the Donners. They found that the Alder Creek camp had fared no better than the lake camp. When the two men had arrived a day earlier, they saw Jean-Baptiste Trudeau carrying a human leg. When they made their presence know, he threw it into a hole in the snow that contained the mostly dismembered body of Jacob Donner. Inside the tent, Jacob's wife, Elizabeth, refused to eat, although her children had survived by eating their father's body. The rescuers discovered three other bodies had already been consumed. In the other shelter, Tamsin Donner was well, but George was even worse. By now, the infection had reached his shoulder. Reed noted that the Donner daughters, Francis, Georgia, and Eliza, were fit enough to travel. It was evident they had resorted to cannibalism to survive, even though he did leave out any references to it in the official report that he later wrote. For the rest of their lives, some of the survivors, including members of the Donner family, not only refused to discuss cannibalism, but claimed that it never occurred in the camps. Other survivors, though, did not become angry or defensive when the subject came up. Many of them freely admitted they had eaten human flesh to stay alive. They simply had no choice. It came down to eating what was there or dying. Georgia Donner, one of the three daughters of George and Tamsin, was never ashamed of the fact that as a five-year-old girl, she'd survived because of the human flesh she was given to eat. The second relief rescued another 17 immigrants from Truckee Lake, but only three of those were adults. Only five people remained at Truckee Lake now. Louis Kiesberg, Levina Murphy, and her son Simon, and the young Eddie and foster children. Tamsin Donner refused to leave her husband behind after Reed told her that a third relief party would be arriving soon. Her three daughters stayed with her. The walk back to Bear Valley was very slow. At one point, Reed sent two men ahead to retrieve the first stash of food, expecting the third relief, a small party led by Selamie Woodworth, to come at any moment. Well, they didn't. 
Margaret Reed had been right about snow in the mountains. They were hit by a terrible blizzard soon after crossing the path. Five-year-old Isaac Donner froze to death and Reed nearly died himself. Mary Donner's feet were badly burned because they were so frostbitten that she didn't realize she was sleeping with them in the fire. When the storm passed, the Breen and Graves families were too exhausted to get up and move, not having eaten for days. The relief party had no choice but to leave without them. Soon after the party left, Elizabeth Graves and her son Franklin died, and the Breens ate the flesh from their bodies so they could survive until the next relief party arrived. They made no efforts to save themselves. When the second relief had departed, they left members of the relief party behind to help those left in the camps. They left Charles Stone at the lake and Charles Cady and Nicholas Clark at the Donner camp. While Clark was out hunting, Stone traveled to Alder Creek and made plans with Katie to abandon the survivors and return to California. When Tamsin learned of their plan, she offered them $500 to take her daughters with them. They agreed and took the money, but only took the girls as far as Truckee Lake. They left them at the cabin with Lavina Murphy and Louis Keysburg. On the way, they passed by the camp where the Breens and Graves families had been left behind, but ducked out of sight and didn't stop to help them in any way. Meanwhile, back at Alder Creek, Nicholas Clark and Jean-Baptiste Trudeau agreed to leave for California on their own. When they reached Truckee Lake and discovered the Donner girl still there, however, they returned to Alder Creek to inform Tanzan that her daughters had not been rescued. It was information that would lead directly to Tamsin's own death. In Bear Valley, William Eddy and William Foster, having apparently patched up their differences from their time in the Forlorn Hope, began racing up the mountains to meet Reed in the Second Relief. They brought other men with them, including a well-known frontiersman named John Stark. These men, who became the Third Relief, soon encountered Reed, who was helping his children struggle on toward Bear Valley. They were all frostbitten and bleeding, but alive. Desperate to rescue their own children, Foster and Eddie persuaded four men with pleading and money to go to Truckee Lake with them. During the journey, they found the survivors from the Breen and Graves families. The relief party split with Foster, Eddie, and two others headed on toward Truckee Lake. Two of the rescuers, hoping to save some of the survivors, each took a child and headed back to Bear Valley. John Stark, though, refused to leave the others. He picked up two children and all the provisions and assisted the remaining Breens and Graves to safety, sometimes advancing the children down the trail a few at a time, putting them down and then going back up to carry down the others. Foster and Eddie finally arrived at Truckee Lake on March 13th. They found Lavina Murphy blind, starved, and mostly insane. But she turned toward them when they asked where their children were dead, she replied. Apparently, three-year-old James Eddy and two-year-old George Foster had died only days before. Both of them had been eaten. Lavina then told them that Keysburg had been so impatient for little George to die that he had strangled him. Keysburg denied it, saying the boy had died from natural causes, but he did admit to butchering and eating the two boys. Eddy and Foster were enraged. Eddie threatened to kill the man right then and there, but Keysburg was in such a weakened state that he didn't do it. He did, however, promise that he would kill him if he ever saw him in California. Later, Eddie tried to make good on this threat in San Francisco, but 
James Reed talked him out of it. Even though Eddie suspected that Kiesberg had killed his son just as he'd killed Foster's, he also discovered while at the lake that his wife and daughter had also been cannibalized. The only good news was that the Donner sisters and Levina's son Simon were still alive. With help, they could be rescued from the mountains. While the rescuers were at the lake, Tamsin Donner arrived from the Alder Creek camp. She had just learned that her daughters were alive and at Truckee Lake, and she begged Eddie to save them. She also asked him to come to the other camp and see if anything could be done for George Donner's arm. George was still alive, but just barely. But Eddie had to refuse. A storm was coming, and if the children were going to be saved, they had to leave right away. Eddie asked Tamsin to come with them, but she wouldn't. She couldn't abandon George. She returned to the Alder Creek camp, and when rescuers started back down the trail, they left only four living members of the Donner Party behind, George and Tamsin, and Lavina Murphy, and Louis Keysburg. By April 1847, the weather had cleared, and winter had finally turned to spring. What was called the Fourth Relief was organized in late March, not as a rescue party, but as a salvage party that would recover belongings and anything of value left at the two camps. These would be sold with part of the proceeds used to help the orphaned children from the party. Well, they found little of value, but they did find the horror that has given the Donner Party the reputation it still has today. They arrived at Truckee Lake on April 13th. There were no signs of life, but plenty of signs of death. Scattered about were bones and dismembered corpses, limbs stripped of flesh and skulls that had been split open. Only Eleanor Eddy and Lavina Murphy's bodies were still whole enough to identify. They scrounged for valuables and buried the dead and then left for the Alder Creek camp. On the way, they ran across fresh tracks left by someone who'd recently followed the same trail, but when they got to the Donner camp, they found no one alive. However, they did find that all of the Donner's trunks had been broken open and their belongings scattered in all directions. They also found another terrible scene. In a kettle outside a tent, they found pieces of human flesh. They assumed the meat had come from George Donner, whose partially dismembered body was found nearby, wrapped in a sheet. His head had been severed and his skull split open. There was no sign anywhere of Tamsin Donner but they did find someone else. After searching the camp and gathering what they could, the men returned to Truckee Lake and were surprised to find Louis Keysburg still alive. He was sitting in the Breen cabin wrapped in a blanket. Next to him on the floor was a pan of water that contained a fresh human liver and lungs. According to Keysburg, Lavina Murphy had died a week after the departure of the third relief. Some weeks later, Tamsin Donner had arrived at his cabin on her way over the pass, soaked and visibly upset because her husband had just died. Keysburg said he put a blanket around her and told her to start out in the morning, but she died during the night. He'd had no choice but to eat her to survive. He hadn't killed her, he said. She was already dead. Well, the salvage party was suspicious of Keysburg's story especially after they searched the cabin and found George Donner's pistols, jewelry, and $250 in gold. They threatened to lynch Keysburg, who confessed that he'd hidden away the Donner's money, but only because Tamsin told him to. She wanted it to go to her children, and he planned to get it to them just as soon as he was rescued. Right. 
Louis Kiesberg became the villain of the Donner Party. He was, of course, not the only member of the group to resort to cannibalism. Roughly half of them did, and most of them were haunted by it for the rest of their lives. But Kiesberg was a different story. He had never been well-liked in the wagon train, abused his wife, and mistreated the men who worked for him. He'd even abandoned that old man Hardcoop because he didn't want him to ride in a wagon. He also never denied eating Tamsin Donner, and according to the Donner sisters, who'd been stranded with him, he ate others before the third relief arrived and probably killed the foster boy. He said he didn't kill him, but he also claimed he didn't kill Lavina Murphy or Tamsin either. And who knows what to believe? Well, no matter what he did, Kiesberg was rescued, and on April 29, 1847, he arrived at Sutter's Fort a year after the original Donner Party had left Springfield, Illinois. But Kiesberg's story wasn't over. News of the Donner Party's fate was spread eastward by Samuel Brannan, an elder of the Mormon Church and a journalist who ran into the salvage party as they were coming down the pass with Kiesberg. Accounts of what the salvage party found in the mountains first reached New York in July 1847. And after that, they appeared everywhere. Journalists dubbed Kiesberg a monster, and he was portrayed as a man who ate humans not just for survival, but for pleasure. And I'm not convinced they were completely wrong, but there's no way to know. The problem isn't that the worst stories about Kiesberg came from an unlikely source. They came from Kiesberg himself. It was said that after settling in California, he would frequent local saloons and talk about being a cannibal to anyone who'd listen. He claimed that human flesh was more delicious than beef and described Tamsin Donner's liver as the sweetest bite he'd ever eaten. His grisly stories eventually got him into trouble and he was ultimately accused of murdering six of his fellow party members, but was acquitted on all accounts due to a lack of evidence. Because he'd eaten it, I guess. He later returned to court, but this time he sued the members of the relief party who found him at Truckee Lake, claiming they'd fueled the terrible rumors about him. Well, the jury ruled in his favor, but awarded him only $1 in compensation and forced him to cover the court costs. Kiesberg's reputation followed him wherever he lived or worked. In 1851, he was the proprietor of the Lady Adams Hotel, but the business suffered from its owner's reputation. No one wanted to stay in a place owned by the Donner Party cannibal. The hotel was burned to the ground. The cause of the fire? Undetermined. Kiesberg spent the next eight years operating the Phoenix Brewery in Sacramento until an 1861 flood destroyed the building. He died in 1895, nearly a half century after the winter that had defined him in the public eye. He took his last breath in a hospital for the poor, the penniless, and only remembered as the last cannibal at Truckee Lake and the survivor that the newspapers referred to as the man-eater. In late July 1847, members of the Mormon battalion under General Stephen Kearney traveled to Truckee Lake buried the rest of the human remains and partially burned two of the cabins. The few who ventured over the pass in the next few years found bones, coins, and other artifacts left behind. In the years that followed, Truckee Lake was renamed Donner Lake, and the nearby cabins where the immigrants lived and died that winter was nicknamed Cannibal Camp. That certainly didn't help the survivors to forget their past. 
Most carried the scars from the experience for the rest of their lives, constantly reminded of the tragedy by newspapers, stories, and by their own terrifying nightmares. In the end, 41 of those who took the Hastings cutoff died, and 46 of them survived. Five perished before reaching the Sierra Nevadas, and 35 died in the camps or trying to cross the mountains. One died just after reaching the valley. Many of those who did survive lost toes to frostbite and suffered from some chronic physical or psychological disorders, but most learned to deal with the mental and emotional issues that haunted them. Now, there was plenty of blame to go around for what happened to the Donner Party. Many blamed Lansford Hastings, the self-styled promoter and the author of the book that Reed and the Donners read from cover to cover and used to plan their journey, never realizing that Hastings himself had never taken the shortcut that he was promoting. Hastings' role in the plight of the Donner Party led to death threats, and he eventually moved to San Francisco where he practiced law for a time, but was never successful. During the Civil War, he proposed leading an army of Southerners west to seize the Arizona Territory for the Confederacy. After the war, he went to South America and published the Immigrant's Guide to Brazil. And he died there in Brazil in 1870 while trying to establish a colony for Confederate veterans. Only the Reed and Breen families remained intact. The children of Jacob Donner, George Donner, and Franklin Graves were orphaned. William Eddy was alone. Most of the Murphy family had died. Most of the survivors of the Donner Party were absorbed in the growing population of California. Some of the survivors lived as unhappy recluses, while some, like William and Mary Graves, Virginia Reed, and Eliza Donner published accounts describing their ordeal. The family members of the Donner Party almost never saw each other after they were rescued, and it's easy to understand why. They had endured a horrific experience and during the ordeal had engaged in what is still considered one of the greatest human atrocities, cannibalism. James Reed settled his family in San Jose, made a fortune in real estate and in gold after the discovery of the precious metal in John Sutter's Creek in 1849, and he became one of the leading citizens of the new state. Several of the streets in San Jose were named for members of the Reed family. James never spoke in public about the killing of John Snyder. His wife, Margaret, lived a peaceful life, no longer bothered by the migraines that had plagued her for so long. When eight-year-old Patty Reed had arrived in California, she still had the little wooden doll that she had saved from the wagon in the desert. That doll later ended up in a display in a museum at Sutter's Fort. Patty Reed was 93 when she died in 1931. Virginia had died 10 years earlier, at the age of 87. Virginia Reed wrote her own account of the trail in that winter in the mountains and never forgot what she went through. Until the day she died, Virginia always made sure that she had cookies or candy with her at all times. Long before, when she'd been rescued from the mountains, she vowed she would never again be caught without food. And she never was. The Breens were the only other family in the company besides the Reeds who all managed to survive that winter in the mountains. They did so mostly by refusing to share their supplies with anyone else. Patrick Breen, the man whose prayers God never seemed to hear, settled his family in San Juan Baptista and he became a prominent rancher. Of the six infants in the Donner Party, Isabella Breen was the only one to survive to adulthood. She was also the last survivor of the entire Donner Party. 
passing away in Hollister, California in 1935. William Eddy, leader of the Forlorn Hope, remarried and started a new family in Petaluma, California. He did try and make good on his promise to Louis Kiesberg, the man who'd cannibalized his family, but he was talked out of it. William Eddy died in Petaluma on December 24th, 1859. A few of the widowed women remarried within months. Brides were scarce in California. Many of the young women were also forced to marry just to survive. At 13 years old, Mary Murphy became an orphan after the death of her parents. Just three months after her rescue and with no other options, she married a man who turned out to be abusive. In a letter, she wrote, I hope I shall not live long, for I am tired of this troublesome world and I want to go to my mother. But Mary survived that marriage and found a better man, Charles Coviard a miner who founded the town of Marysville, California, which he named for his beloved wife. Mary Graves, a 20-year-old survivor of the Forlorn Hope, married again after her rescue. The next year, her husband, Edwin Pyle, was murdered. I wish I could cry, but I cannot, Mary wrote. If I could forget the tragedy, perhaps I would know how to cry again. Mary's sister, Sarah Fosdick, also remarried, and she tried her best to support and care for their younger siblings, who had lost the rest of the family in the mountains. The more fortunate were adopted, while some had to survive without any home or family of their own. Nancy Graves was nine years old during the winter of 1846 and 47. She was one of the children left behind at the camp with the Breen family when they had to be abandoned by the rescue party. At the time, she didn't know that the flesh she'd eaten to survive was her mother's. It was a revelation that when it came was so devastating that it would lead to bouts of sudden weeping during the rest of her childhood and a sense of guilt from which she would never recover. She refused to acknowledge her involvement in the story, even when contacted by historians interested in recording the most accurate versions of that winter. The Donner children were left as orphans too. Some of the younger Donner children were adopted by various families, while the older girls, some as young as 14, married young Californians. The oldest of the survivors, Aletha, died in 1923 at the age of 90. She had spent the last 50 years on a ranch near Sacramento. She never talked about what happened at her family's camp, but every year when a local school offered a mandatory unit on the Donner party, she would sit in the classroom listening silently from the back row. After the publication of a book about the Donner Party in 1879, the husband of one of the Donner sisters claimed the book's description of cannibalism was untrue and filed an injunction against it. But a judge allowed the publication to proceed, citing numerous pieces of evidence that proved cannibalism had actually happened. In 1911, Eliza Donner published her own book about the Donner Party. Eliza had been one of the last survivors to be rescued from the lake camp, and she and the two sisters who were with her mostly raised each other in the San Francisco area until 1861, when Eliza married Sherman Houghton, the widower of another Donner Party survivor. Houghton became the mayor of San Jose, and Eliza wrote her book. As time marched on, the cabin shelters and corpses left at Alder Creek and Truckee Lake vanished with time. The chilling reminders of the Donner Party encouraged new immigrants to hurry along the California Trail for years to come. 
avoiding the shortcuts that promised more than they could possibly deliver. Eventually, the railroads put an end to the Oregon and California trails and time wiped away the physical remnants of the Donner Party suffering, but it would not re-erase the memories. Truckee Lake, renamed Donner Lake, was frequently visited over the years. The tracks of the Union Pacific Railroad ran along a nearby ridge and the Lincoln Highway, the first automobile route across America, followed along the north shore of the lake and then climbed to the summit which became known as Donner Pass. This is still Route 40 today. On the east end of the lake is Donner Memorial State Park, which offers campsites, hiking trails, picnic areas, and beaches. Of course, these are all things that none of the trapped immigrants of that terrible winter could have ever imagined. In 1901, work began on a monument to the ill-fated wagon train near the site of the cabins that had given them shelter. It was erected in honor of all the pioneers who made the difficult trek across the plains and mountains in the 1840s, but there was no doubt that the Donner Party was central to the idea. The monument had been partially funded by selling more than 5,000 glass vials that contained splinters from the ruins of the cabins. On June 6, 1918, the monument was dedicated. Atop a 22-foot high pedestal, the same height as the depth of the snow that winter, stood a bronze depiction of a pioneer family. The ceremony was attended by hundreds, including the governors of California and Nevada, dignitaries, area residents, and visitors from across the country. A band played music, the politicians made speeches, and the onlookers erupted into thunderous applause when two girls dressed in white pulled the drape off the giant bronze statue. But there were three in attendance who were not as excited as the crowd around them. They were the guests of honor and were given a place to stand at the foot of the monument so they could witness the honors bestowed on the immigrants who had once survived and died there at that spot. The guests of honor were three old ladies wearing their Sunday finest. They were Patty Reed and sisters Eliza Donner Houghton and Francis Donner Wilder. They represented the last of the surviving witnesses to what had taken place at Donner Lake. More than 70 years before, they had been little girls who were fighting to stay alive. Now they'd returned to the place where they had been frozen and famished to witness another moment in history. The women didn't cry. They had used up all their tears long ago. Those children became women who married and became mothers and grandmothers. The people they once knew were now ghosts. Only 46 of the immigrants who'd made camp on the land east of the pass on the night of October 31st, 1846, survived that terrible winter. Is it any wonder that so many consider it haunted? For decades, Truckee Lake was considered a cursed and shunned place. The stories of the doomed immigrants were widely told and those who passed by the place on their own journey west hurried past rather quickly, avoiding any urge to linger there. As the years passed, stories grew. Early legends of the lake claimed that the restless ghosts of the doom expedition still wailed and cried in the night, reliving their fear and starvation over and over again. Tales were told by travelers who weren't aware of the dark history linked to the ruined cabins along the lake shore. Many of them stayed the night before they crossed the pass and experienced the phantoms of those who died years before. Those same accounts tell of mournful wails and ghostly figures who wander about in panic and confusion. 
There were many tales told of the spirit of Olivina Murphy, who slowly went mad, trapped in the cabin with children she could no longer care for as the winter days stretched on with no end in sight. They often said she lingered near the side of the family's cabin, now marked by a large rock that had been part of the chimney, and she asked travelers for help. When they approached her, the emaciated woman in rags simply vanished. She was an unnerving figure, but not the one that so many travelers feared. It is strange that a woman who was so widely loved and respected in life went on to become so frightening in death, but that's exactly what happened to Tamsin Donner. For decades, stories told of a woman's wailing voice that echoed in the night around the ruins of the old cabins. Many passing immigrants saw the woman staring at them as they went by. Their stories never changed. Whether the travelers were in wagons on horseback or traveling by automobile, she was frequently there looking for something or someone with her dark, hollow eyes. The restless spirit, it was said, was Tamsin Donner, still trapped at the place where she met her end. It was said that the mystery surrounding her death may have kept her spirit at the spot. You see, whether she died or whether she was murdered by Louis Keysburg will never be known. And for that reason, it's said, her spirit remains. She is trapped here by the lies that accompanied her death. As years passed, the stories of Tamsin Donner lived on, so to speak. Visitors to the state park reported a wild-eyed woman in a pale dress who was there one moment and then gone the next. They heard a woman weeping and crying in the darkness. Often they experienced an inexplicable cold chill around the side of the cabin where Tamsin took her last breath. Tourists taking snapshots in the area returned home to find the unsmiling face of a woman in old-fashioned clothing in their family photos. Another tourist with a video camera was filming during a family picnic and when he watched the video later, heard the far off sound of a woman crying in pain. Was it the voice of Tamsin Donner still crying from the other side? Perhaps it was. When I was growing up, my family spent a lot of time out west. I'd always known the Donner Party story, and when I was older, I took a trip to see where the story had come to an end. I'm originally from Illinois. I'd been where it started, but seeing the place where the journey ended was different. And it's not just the lake. Even the old highway, not Interstate 80, but the old Lincoln Highway route that travels through the pass, well, it has a feeling of history about it. I'd been interested in the story of the immigrants who got lost and perished in the wild for many years. The promise of ghostly activity at the site where their journey concluded made the trip even more interesting. But as it turned out, my night at the lake camp was without incident. And perhaps that was for the best. I'd be hard pressed to think of a group of people or a spirit of a woman like Tamsin Donner who more deserved to rest in peace. The horrible days they endured at the lake and along the trail were terrible enough that they shouldn't be subject to an endless purgatory here on earth. I'd hate to think that the spirits of heroic figures like William Eddy, Charles Stanton, and Tamsin Donner are still lost out there, somewhere in the wilderness, forced to repeat their most hellish days over and over again. Perhaps some ghost stories and the ghosts who create them just deserve to fade away.
You ready to get started then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now in season six of the podcast, Woods and Fields. Fields dark, dark and, and wicked. Thank you. Right. I'm a little slow on the uptake that time. It's, it's all good. <laughs> uh, I'm your co-host, Cody Beck. And uh, the other voice you hear is uh, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey, What's up, man? Oh, just the usual. Just gearing up for the conference. So yeah, it's every busy. day. So busy, busy. Yeah. So, Everything coming together well so yeah, far? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, everything's going to be good. So I'm looking forward to it. So I should add to anyone who's attending the conference this year, um, they did get a brand new air conditioning system at our oh. over the winter. So and it does work. So that's a plus. So that's you awesome. Know, um, after last year's breakdown. Yeah, I thought yeah. people might want to know that. So they fix those holes in the roof too. I, I hope so. I really do. <laughs> um, I'm hoping that we won't get any rain, but you'll notice the forecast completely turned around. It was supposed to be like in the 80s, and now like this Tuesday is supposed to be like 101. Great. So and through the conference, they're talking about 90. So you know, but you know, we're inside for most of it, right? So we'll be all right. Yeah, you know you. Pack hundred something, whatever people in a room and get them all uh, moving around. Three hundred, but 300. still, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, so. can, you can tell. I I just got home, and so I, as soon as I did, I turned my air conditioner on and closed all the vents except for the one in this room. But as you can see, it did. <laughs> oh, not you had to turn down, didn't you, while you were gone? Yeah, right? but didn't yeah. do a damn thing. So I'm just like a yeah. sweaty mess. I'm not Ugh. looking forward yeah. to that happen again but hopefully with the new ac they'll be they'll be good to go yes yes so yeah but um i yeah i don't want to spend a lot of time on intro stuff because we we got to talk about the story because we got two parts we got to talk about but um i do want to stress though that if you guys are interested in doing some stuff this summer you know that ghosts aren't just for halloween you don't have to wait until then uh but we do have um i've got like six river road tours coming up in july and august and five different nights of dinners actually six but one's already sold out uh but i've got something with the limp family i've got wyatt earp i've got a hell hath no fury um lizzie borden um the american axe murders uh presentations a little bit of aliska and a lot of everything else uh so those are coming up and river road tours and you know i know people are kind of freaking out about uh, you know prices and stuff but hey None of our prices have gone up. We've stayed the same. We're not changing our prices. And so if you don't want to travel anywhere very far, come to Alton. You know, just come to Alton. See us there. Yeah. Because uh, we're having a good time. We had a great weekend. We had two really great groups of people uh, for River Road Tour on Friday night and Saturday night. We had a great group, too. And, you know, we've got a lot of stuff coming up this summer. A lot of people are already booked, but, hey, there's still room. So hopefully we'll see you. And don't forget my new book comes out at the conference but then it'll be available to order starting june 27th uh that's one day in the valley of the kings about howard carter and lord carnarvon and the curse of tutankhamun so yeah hey you know trivia fact mm -hmm. i don't know you probably have never watched downton abbey right probably. i have not no but you are familiar with it since you do work at a media company yes I'm familiar. Um, but anyway the house where they filmed downton abbey was lord carnarvon's house in real life Oh, okay. The guy who funded the expedition that found King Tut, that was his house. Um, nice. He actually owned that and lived there. Uh, so that's why, if anybody sharp viewers would note that Lord Grantham had 
two dogs named for Egyptian gods. That was why it was like a nod to uh, Lord Carnarvon. So kind of fun. So what made you decide to uh, venture out of the States finally? Well, you know, I I kept thinking I wanted to do something fun that I could do that was, you know, if I was going to venture out of the States, I wanted it to be, you know, something kind of adventurous kind of thing. And, you know, I couldn't write another you know, um, Indiana Jones movie or anything. So I just figured, you know, what's something that I've been interested in my whole life. And King Tut just came to mind. I've always loved that story and I've never really gotten to write about it much. So this was something fun that I got to do. And I did have fun with this book. It was a lot of fun to write. So it will be out very soon. Well, that's awesome. Uh, can I go ahead and talk about some listener reviews here? Real yeah, quick? please. Yeah. Awesome. Well, people have, uh, they listened to my pleas um, for, <laughs> for reviews. So I appreciate that one. Uh, this one comes to us from Buck357. It's titled Awesome Show slash 80s Horror Movies. It says, I found this quite by accident, but it is hands down my favorite podcast. I'm in the middle of the Hollywood season. I love the history, banter, and the relationship between the hosts. I share their sense of humor. I plan to listen as long as y'all keep them coming. Thanks for all the work. Um, cool. So that's really nice. Yeah. Um, then there's one other one I wanted to uh, to address. It was Cody for your attention only. <laughs> yeah, it just said, Cody, my sincerest apologies. This time I missed it by that much, Rick Ray. Um, that was to him calling it Corey. Um, I, I thought it was funny and I thought it was nice that he. Uh, uh, yeah, and, and I saw that, that too. But yeah, so thanks, Rick. That was that was really fun. Uh, okay, so we said last time this was, you know, it's a two-parter. It's a there was a behemoth of some episodes, each one. And yeah. so we said we're just gonna talk about everything after we get done with the second part. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not gonna go through all the details because you all just listened to over two hours, I guess. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Sorry about that. <laughs> um, I, I I understand why, you know, a lot of times I ask, you know, why the story, why do we remember this, that. I, I get it uh, with this one, but I am. This sure. one's a lot easier to understand than, say, some of the other ones that we've talked about. Yeah. Especially, and I hate to say it because I love the story, but the, the Black Dahlia always comes up. It's kind of the same way Lizzie Borden always comes up. Mm-hmm. Why? You know what I mean? Why those when there's all of these other stories that are just as brutal or even more brutal you know, than those particular murders, why those, you know, or in this case, this one I can understand because this was something that, you know, uh, like the stories that you tell your kids at bedtime to make sure that they, you know, behave. This is sort of the story that you tell pioneers heading west to make sure they follow the rules, stick to the route, don't take any shortcuts, um, just stay on the road and you'll be fine and make sure you leave early enough. You know, I mean, that's what this that's what this story became. A cautionary tale. Yeah, exactly. So um, but so the thing that I am wondering about then is uh, was this just like a perfect storm of like ignorance hubris being misled like bad decisions or no decisions like you talked about like was this yeah. just a perfect storm of all that stuff it is. why this just got so fun it is because it, there were several things about the story that they could have righted the ship you know many times they left a little late so that was one thing uh not but not that late not mm-hmm. late enough i mean yes they got behind on the trail but lots of people did you know, as they traveled along, they were supposed to be to Fourth of July or Independence Rock. You know, mm-hmm. by Fourth of July, they didn't make it. They were, you know, a week and a half behind. But even so, if they had just 
stayed on the trail. Mm-hmm. But once they got to that shortcut, I think that was the point where things went off the rails and there was no way to catch that. There was no way to, to, to catch up that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only thing that could have happened, well, there were several things that could have happened. One, if someone else had been leading the wagon train other than George Donner, not mm-hmm. that he was a bad dude, everybody liked the guy, but that was the problem. Everybody mm-hmm. liked the guy and he liked everybody. And so he never wanted to rock the boat. Sure. And so it was, he was easy to get along with. And so he didn't like to make hard decisions. If they had put James Reed in charge instead of, you know, petty dislikes of him or whatever, it would have been a whole different story. They would have kept moving even faster, even though, yes, it was his idea to take the shortcut, but they still probably could have pushed on through, but they just kept stopping. Bad leadership, splitting up the wagon train into two parts, another bad idea. Uh, Once they made it back to the California Trail and got off that stupid shortcut, which took them everywhere they shouldn't have gone. You know, um, first they went down the, the, the one Canyon they went down was the wrong way and ended up in a dead end. Yep. And then they had to cut their way through an Indian trail that was, you know, a couple of feet wide, you know, or, or even, even let's say it was six feet wide. Cause it said the horses passed through, but you couldn't get wagons down it. So they had to cut eight miles of wilderness and then only to find out that they couldn't go any further. Yeah. They had to go all the way around again. So that was a problem. Then they got to the desert crossing that was only supposed to be a day and a night and they got there and there's no water and it took them three days to get across. It almost killed them and killed their animals. And then they ended up stopping to rest on the other side when they found water, which understandable, but still put them even further behind. And then when they got back on the California trail, then we had the incident at the climbing out of the hill where Reed killed the, that driver and, you know, in Mm self-defense, see, that was another perfect storm kind of thing. If George Donner had been there, it would have been a whole different story. He could have gotten everybody calmed down, but it was, it was a few people who didn't like Reed. That's, that's all it was. And they, turned it into something that it really wasn't. Well, mostly the Graves and the Brains, neither of whom I ever liked anyway. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they were problematic from the very beginning. There's a reason they survived mm-hmm. their entire families intact because they just said, screw everybody else. And so, you know, when you had that incident, then that put them further behind. Now we're going to get rid of James Reed, who's going to, they're going to send him off on his own. And so, you know, the only other thing that might have saved them is if the weather had held off a little longer, but there's no way, there's no way you can control that. And by the time they were just too late getting to the pass, you know, once they got to the mountain pass, they just couldn't get through. It was just too much snow. Yeah. I mean, we can't even, it's hard for us to even, you know, living where we do, you know, when you're talking about the St. Louis area, yeah, we get snow sometimes, but feet not at most. Yeah. You can't, we can't picture 30 feet of snow that's people who live up in like buffalo new york yeah, somewhere, yeah, yeah. you know upstate new york and in the rocky mountains and stuff or in this case the sierra nevadas you can't picture what 30 feet of snow even looks like Mm-mm. you know i can't even i can't even imagine what that was like yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But yes it was you're exactly right it was a perfect storm of everything that went wrong yeah, and there's and there's I it was I was having trouble keeping track of a lot of things um because it seems like 
people, like you said, the, the groups, they split up, they come back together, they mix yeah. members, they change the names. Um, people, some people are going out and coming back like right. all over the place. Oh, I know. Well, and you know, and you could kind of understand it too, in a way also, it makes a lot of sense. It's just funny. We always call it the Donner party and then it really wasn't the Donner party for, for very long. Well, it was, I guess, through the worst part of it, the part that most people remember. Yeah. Most people don't talk about the trip to get out there, but the thing is, you you have to to understand how it all went so bad mm-hmm. when they made it to the mountains. You know, um, you have to understand everything that came before. Um, so it, it was really was not the Donner Party, as you mentioned. It was all these other people, the Boggs Party, the you know all these different parties. Until finally, George Donner was elected leader of the wagon train. So, you know, but yeah, it does. It is hard to keep track. And then you have guys like, you know, Edwin Bryan or Charles Stanton, these single guys who, you know, for no reason, whatever, they take off and try to help, you know, especially Stanton. You know, he left the wagon to go get help and come and come back. And he had no reason to come back. I mean, right. other than he was just a good guy and then and ends up dying for it. You know, he ends up dying. And if they had listened to him in the first place, that first night he tried to get him over the pass. And he he and the two Miwoks went ahead to scout and said, OK, we can do it. If we go right now, we can make it across and then we'll be on the other side. Went back to get him and everybody decided to go to sleep, you know. And so and and, you know, I even even the people I really like out of the story, the the, the heroic people, the Reeds and, and William Eddy and stuff, you know, the people I really liked, you know, even they buckled down to go to sleep. And you're thinking, man, come on. But. I don't know. It's hard for us to we can look at it now in, in sure. hindsight and from a, uh, from our, our warm, comfy home in the middle yeah. of winter and go, oh, what are they thinking? You know, and then, you know, not being there. I kind of uh, it's kind of hard to put yourself in that position. It's just like thinking about cutting down so much of the woods, like you said, built like for trails and then like yeah. people walking until their feet are just completely fucked, you know, like yeah, that's got black be... and swollen and cracked so that they bleed. Yeah. From just the walking, you know, the walking. It's like, it's like, um, it was, it's like a four month version of the Lord of the Rings. Right. <laughs> just <The> walking. <laughs> we're going to walk some more. Now we're going to walk some more. This is the entire movie. That's pretty much what the entire story is. And so that's why when I was doing so, I was like, I am not going to you know, belabor the drudgery of the trail because it's a lot of walking. Yeah. Uh, but so in, in the book, I mean, I had to leave a lot of things out. I uh, believe me, this was long. This was, this was two very long episodes. Mm-hmm. If I had left everything in, it would have been like six episodes. And yeah. it's, it, it's like, there's, we've got too many stories this season. So I mean, I was able to cut it down to two, but you know, even so there was a lot of stuff that I had to leave out. And just like James Reed, if people listen to the podcast and they're hearing James Reed makes it to safety, right. And he finds Bill McCutcheon, you know, he runs into Stanton, he finds Bill McCutcheon and they start to put together a rescue party. And you're thinking this dude waited like two months. Why did he wait? Why didn't he go back and get his family? I tried to explain it as best I could, but there's actually a lot more complication to that story. Mm. When he got over the pass and, and made it to Sutter's Fort, um, he found himself signed up to fight in the Mexican War. Oh, damn. And so he actually had to go serve in the military for a short amount of time as a promise to get help 
to go back and bring back the party. But he had to, in order to do that, he had, and there was nobody to go anyway. Everybody was in the middle of fighting this war. So Reed had to go fight and was enlisted as, as an officer in the, in the army for a while. And then, the, so it took months for them to be able to get this rescue thing together. And there was a lot of complication to that too, trying to raise money and all kinds of stuff until I, I mean, I had to jump ahead. Otherwise, we we'd I'd still be recording this podcast like a week later. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I I couldn't I couldn't keep it going. So I figured I could throw in that 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 it was a lot harder than it sounds like. You know, in in the show. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because I at first with Reed, I thought that he was just really bad at math or assuming like, <laughs> yeah. that the cattle. Yeah. Well, I mean, die. and they did think they're in, and they still at that point, he and Sutter still thought that the wagon train was moving. They didn't realize they'd gotten bogged down in the mountains. They didn't know. And so even when they did find out that they were stuck, he figured, well, they've got all the cattle left. Right. You know, they didn't plan on the fact that, you know, so much of so many of the cattle died and then were lost in the snow. That was the biggest problem is it just kept snowing. So if they if the cattle had died and they'd been able to you know, bring the, the carcasses somewhere where they could keep track of them, but they couldn't find them. Mm-hmm. There are as a, a lot. I wrote a lot about how the at the Donner camp at Alder Creek, they were taking big poles and going out and trying to stab and see if it would bring up any kind of flesh that there yeah. was anything down there. And they just couldn't find the cows. That's why they were starving. You know, they couldn't find anything. Even the oxen that had pulled the wagons, they couldn't find those either. Yeah. Or they'd starve to death and they were useless by that time, too. So that doesn't help either. Yeah. And I, I the story that stuck with me, too, was uh, was it the other Stanton who stayed by the fire and just died with this pipe? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Charles. Yeah. Charles did. Um, he just couldn't go anymore any further. His, he was blind from the snow. That was during the, the rescue party, the forlorn hope part, the right. snowshoe party. Um, he went out with them to try to guide them back. You know, because he and the Miwoks had already come that way once. So he thought he could get them back. And uh, instead, he went snow blind from I mean, nobody had sunglasses, sure. you know, they had sunglasses. So the best you could do is try to shield your eyes as best you can. But if the sun's out and you're walking of nothing but snow, you know, it makes you the altitude sickness and the snow blindness. You know, he just couldn't go any further. And he knew that he was going to get them killed if he kept lagging behind. Yeah. So, once again, this guy sacrificed everything for these people, you know, who were his friends, you know, but and I don't think he probably ever regretted it. I mean, I, I'm sure I mean, I'm sure he would have liked to have lived longer, but I don't yeah. think he died thinking, boy, what an idiot I am for these people. I don't think he thought that at all. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like he did the the right thing, the hard decision. Um, like you yeah, about, I mean, yeah. Yeah, this whole story is full of just really tough decisions. It um, is. And, and many of them turned out to be wrong, yeah. <laughs> as it turned out. Right. <laughs> and uh, one of the themes that you mentioned a couple of times in here, pretty much, and, you know, big reason people know the story still is because of the cannibalism. And you, you mentioned yeah. eat, eat the dead or die. Um, right. I would I'll go on record. I would totally eat a person if I had to. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, it, it got to the point where they had no they had no choice. It yeah. wasn't except for Lewis Kiesberg. They you didn't seem do to it like because, it. Yeah. They didn't do it because they wanted to. They did it because they were forced into a corner and had no choice. And even then, in the snowshoe party, at least, it was done very reluctantly at first. Mm-hmm. I mean, they ended up leaving 
um, one of the, the driver, Antonio, the one that died first, they left him for it wasn't until someone else died. They finally decided to, you know, to do what they had to do. Right. Um, so it, even that was reluctant. And then, you know, when, you know, they were eating, you know, one of the, the girl's little brother when Lemuel died and they were eating him and she freaked out. Yeah. You saw roasting parts of him over the fire. I mean, it's a it's a horrific story. But on the other hand, the fact that they survived at all really says a lot about how, you know, how brave and how just refused to give up these people were mm-hmm. i mean they looked like walking skeletons by the time they made it 33 days most of that time without food yeah coming down from the mountain i'm used so, i'm useless after like four hours without <laughs> yeah, a meal. right exactly i know that's what i'm saying so the fact that they they were able to do that and and survive it just really says a lot and you know and and one of the things i always like to point out to people is you know and I've tried to make this, get this point across in the story is that, you know, when we think of the wild West, for the most part, we think of like, you know, Oh, the Cowboys and the, you know, the gunfighters and the, you know, the mountain men and stuff, but you don't think about the women involved. Mm. And, you know, women in this story are like the unsung heroes, even on the way out there, they're doing most of the work. I mean, they're taking care of the kids, they're cooking, they're cleaning, they're washing the clothes, everything. But even when it came to the snowshoe party, all the men, except for Eddie, wanted to go back. Mm -hmm. They wanted to give up and go back. But the women refused to go because they said, listen, we left we left our kids behind to starve and I am not going to give up. I'm going to die or I'm going to get back with food for them. Yeah, it's bad. So, you know, they forced them into continuing the march, you know, so. Uh, I don't know. It's um when you get to the you know, when you get to the point where they finally realize that we're going to have to eat whoever dies, um, it, I things get interesting after that. You know, one guy wants to draw lots. William Eddy says, let's have a duel. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's you know, like, to make things fair. You know, the, the dueling part is like super hardcore and really badass. But I feel like that would have been even like more barbaric. And I know, right. You know, at least they're letting people drop dead instead of yeah, actively yeah. killing. Well, them. maybe he figured they'd have more meat on their bones if somebody lost the fight early on, but that's whatever, true. You know. Yeah. I mean, and I guess you can only, you can only get so much, like so many nutrients out of someone who's already who's starving. starved. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's kind of the problem. That's why when you read it and you think, okay, 33 days, yeah, okay. That's a month. That's a long time, but look, they killed a deer they had food when they started. They ate like four or five people. But how much meat is that really? Right. When you're trying to feed this entire snowshoe party, yeah. you know, when you're trying to feed all those women and their husbands and everybody, you know, I, what were there seven who made it out? You know, you got to, you know, you got to feed somebody. And, and it just didn't go that far. Right. And finally wonder- found the two caught up with the I like the part where they the guy decides he's going to kill the, the two Indians in the middle yeah. of the night because they don't count because they're just, they're just Indians. Right. And Eddie's like, goes and like, I can just, you can picture the conversation in our terminology. You guys got to get the fuck out of here yeah, because exactly. this dude's nuts <laughs> and he's going to kill you and they're going to eat you. And then they sneak out of the camp in the middle of the night. So then he wants to start just killing any of the women who are left. Well, she's yeah. useless. She doesn't even have a husband. Her husband's dead. Let's kill her. And it's like, dude, <laughs> let's no. slow down here. Yeah. 
Yeah. But then they, I mean, but then, then I, the, the part about the story I like is Eddie tells this guy, if I find out that you're, you know, if I find out you're threatening these women one more time, I'm going to kill you myself. And then at the end of the story, those two are together going up into the mountains to look for their kids. Yeah. Like best pals. I guess they patch things up. I guess know? so. Cause I don't think that'd be somebody I'd want to go off. With I, wouldn't, myself. I wouldn't either. All I'm thinking is if I'm going into the woods with this guy and we run out of food, I'm screwed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I you, better keep my one eye open at all times. Yeah. You better, uh, you better be. But I guess maybe, you know, temporary insanity kind of thing, I guess. I don't know. I mean, a lot of these, these stories is do what you got to do. So yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe that was it. But yeah, even when they, they killed that deer, you talk about like drinking its blood and eating yeah. some of the meat raw and stuff. And I wonder how many, well, I wonder how many deer they even saw, but like if, if yeah, she had to help, if hunt. they had to help steady the rifle and all that, like, I'm just surprised they even got one, you know, mm-hmm. like it's not they're without scaring it. or. It's well, we know he was a good shot. So I'm going to say that had a lot to do with it. And I guess with Marianne holding up the rifle or at least leaning so that he could maybe he had it on her shoulder or something. That's sure. all I can think of. But he was like too weak to hold it up. I mean. I realized that those rifles from the 1840s were probably pretty damn heavy, but you're, you're really starving if you can't hold up a rifle, especially a guy who's, you know, a really good hunter, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and then sometimes like when people would go out and have to turn back around after like four days, like yeah. that just seems like, Oh, I the most know. defeating, terrible. I know when like, you get to the point where you just can't, I don't know. I just keep thinking if you can make it four days, can't, why don't you, can't you just push on easy for me to say though, you sure. know, I'm not there and, you know, and, and, you know, I'm obviously not used to, to doing anything like that in 30 feet of snow, but right. it just, I just keep thinking four days, man, just keep going, you know, but yeah. You're out. You probably don't have any food. So you probably haven't eaten hardly anything in a week. So now you're trying to trudge through, you know, 15, 20, 30 feet of snow. Eh, You either go back or you just lay down and die and just forget it. You know, (laughs) just go, okay, I give up. That's it. I'm done. Troy, talk to me after you've eaten your own shoes. Okay. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And snow blindness too. That's a bitch. I mean, it takes a while to recover from that. And like, well, you mentioned some people, you said that, you know, they were blind and stuff like did, did some people actually completely lose their sight or yeah but it it would come back Uh because once the once if you can block out the glare i mean i i read a number of accounts of that happening usually they would just tie something around their eyes and walk with the blindfold and somebody would kind of lead them along Mm. uh, with a rope or just hanging on to them or whatever and after your eyes have time to rest you're more careful in the future in the future you know you're a little more careful with your eyesight at that point right Right. Um, well, is there anything else that you had to omit from this or the book that you think would be? Important? No, I mean, I didn't I didn't really omit anything from the book. Um, okay, I just okay. had to kind of trim back some stuff um, out of the book, you know, a lot of the stuff on the, with the journey and stuff. But um, I, I hope that that the show, that, that the two episodes, especially this last one, got the point across of how miserable and horrible it was living in those camps. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard for us to imagine what it must have been like. I mean, you're talking about people who are spending the entire winter trapped mostly inside these already dirty, filthy cabins anyway. 
you know, and the, the mice that would get in that they would try to catch so they could eat them and the bugs and the lice and the filth because there was no bathroom or anything, no place to wash up. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure some people did bring in snow and melt it over the fire, but even after a while, they had trouble with keeping fires because there was no dry wood anywhere and right. the snow was too deep to find any. So, I mean, it's just, it was such a miserable situation that I can, I can understand why some of the people who did survive ended up with, you know, you know, mental issues, PTSD. Of course, nobody called it anything like that back then. You were just expected to get over it. But right. I mean, you know, when you talk about, you know, some of the people involved and the things that happened to them, it's just, you know, hard to hard to imagine what that must have been like. I mean, it, it is almost impossible. And, you know, I talked about at the end, Virginia uh, Reed, when she, you know, grew up and went through her entire life and swore that she would never not have food in mm -hmm. her pocket. And she kept food with her all the time. I mean, that is, that's an OCD kind of thing caused by trauma, you yeah. know, I mean, cause she was old enough to remember everything. You know, it wasn't, she didn't have to rely on other people's stories. She knew what had happened. She was there and was old enough to remember it. And I can't, I can't hardly imagine what that must've been like. And then when it was over, so many of them had such terrible lives, you know, because they were orphaned and 12, 13 years old, had no choice but to like get married and stuff. And it just, I don't know, just a really grim for a lot of them. I mean, some right. of them turned out fine. You know, the Reeds did, of course, the Breens in the grave and, you know, and then some of them did, you know, some of them turned out fine, but um I don't know, man. It just, um, it was, it was rough, you know, it was terrible. And, you know, the stories that these people had to live with too, you know, that's, that's the only thing we remember is they, you know, they were cannibals. Well, how'd you like to go through that your entire life? Right. You know, somebody said, Oh, you know, they were part of the Donner party. Oh, wow. Who'd you eat? You know that, I mean, and people like Lewis Kiesberg, of course, reveled in it because he loved the attention. Guy was nuts anyway, but yeah, loved the attention. But for the rest of them, I, I don't think it was something that they were particularly proud of. You sure. Know? But what choice did they have? None. They had no choice. No, exactly. And you talk, to do. you need to talk about the cabins that they lived in. Like, what kind of structures are we talking here? What were they able to actually build? Well, there was a cabin already at the lake. Uh, okay. when they, there was one. And I don't know how big it was, uh, but I know there was a cabin already there because when they came back down from the past, they tried to, you know, make it as habitable as possible. But that first night it was raining so much that a lot of them just ended up sleeping under their wagons to try to stay dry. But I know that they did the best they could to put together shelters, but how and how sturdy they were, I don't know. And so when I say cabins, they were probably more, I know some of them were just lean-tos mm -hmm. propped up against rocks or propped up against the other cabin that was already there. I don't know that, I do also know that they did um, strip the hides off the oxen that had been used to pull the wagons to try to have some kind of roof. But even so, it's not like, you know, when you go to like a historic site or something and see a log cabin there, they weren't like that. They were pretty crude because, I mean, they did have tools and things, but you got to remember it was already snowing. Mm -hmm. By the time they realized they were stuck, they're already working in a couple of feet of snow. But I mean, these guys were handy. I mean, this is the kind of stuff they were used to doing. So sure. I'm sure that they were, 
you know, as, as best they could. They filled the cracks full of mud and did everything they could to try to keep them as warm as possible. You know, fires inside, but I mean, you're talking about, you know, it's not like you're gonna build much of a chimney. You're probably gonna get some rocks together to make something to kind of blow the smoke out of your the inside of your shelter. But even though, it's gonna be pretty crude. Right. So, yeah. I mean, they're lucky to have survived in those. But, you know, once the snow got so deep though, they were buried down there under the snow. That's when the rescue party, when the first relief first arrived, they couldn't even see the cabins. That's how deep the snow was. Damn. It wasn't until they started yelling and people started popping out of the snow like gophers. Mm-hmm. And they realized that, you know, people were out there. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. Yeah. Pretty bad. Imagine going out and, you know, failing, turning back around and come home and somebody's eating your roof. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is exactly what happened to some of them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, oh. Bad news, man. Yeah. And I mean, I know that also eating people, um, I know that there are diseases and things that come with that. And sure. um, I know people get, get a little shaky and stuff. I think I that's a steady diet, though. I think oh, that the, okay. I think times, the diseases okay. and illnesses that you can get from like eating people's brains and stuff. I think you have to do that over a long term kind of thing. I don't think one snack. Oh, okay. So I'm okay. <laughs> it's going to make you sick. If I just ate someone's leg, I think I'd probably be okay. Yeah. Um, or, you know, even just, you know, some of it, I don't, I just think that over a, you know, a several year period that would probably, I know there are illnesses and diseases that Got it. affect your brain. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. And yeah. I initially, I was just thinking, you know, um, eating like the meat and stuff, but then I'd never really occurred to me like, oh yeah, you could eat a liver. You could sure brains, heart, whatever, yeah. you know, well, like, it's just, I mean, yeah, because honestly, you know, like you, like we already said, how much meat like is going to be left. Sure. You know what I mean? You're going to have to go for organs. This is such a lovely discussion, here. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you'd have to go for organs because I think that you know, these people would be starving be skin and bones. So it's it re- be like just, you know, a steady diet of nothing but wings. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? There's no wings, not worth the effort, not enough meat on the bones. That's how these people would be right. by, you know, two months into the winter there's nothing left. So yeah. you got to go for something juicier. I, uh, I met a fan of the podcast yesterday. Um, I believe his name was Brandon at a place called Tucker's. And um, he was asking, you know, how stuff's going. I said, oh, we're recording, cutting up my food. I was like, oh, yeah, we're um, recording an episode tomorrow. And he's like, about what? And I take a bite of my steak. I was like, the Donner Party? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's like, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, and then my uncle asked, he's like, so what's that about again? And I was like, I'll tell you on the car ride home. Yeah, right. Let's not talk about it at dinner. Yes. So. That's a- always a fun one to do when I do like uh, every winter. I do an evening with the Donner party and you know, which of course brings out anytime I post about it brings out all the stupidest jokes and everybody posts stuff. Like it's the first time these jokes have ever been. Heard, I know, you know? I'm probably guilty, but of I know, but anyway, what's being served, you know, all this stuff. And anyway, um, but I always like to do it in the winter time because it then gives people better ideas. You know, it's cold out the snow, whatever, but um, you know, we always have a big meal beforehand and then, <laughs> And then I get to talk about this the rest of the night. So, yeah, yeah I mean, they know what uh, they signed up for. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, and then, not, you know, no surprise. There's not, not really a shortage of ghost stories around um, no, the lake yeah. and places like that and the right. trail. And um, I bet I'm sure that, gosh, there's there's got to be just tons of traumatic history along that 
that trail and just, I mean, so many people making that journey and not making it, you know, I mean, I played Oregon trail. I I left my shit. Yeah. There you go. You know how people die of dysentery, you know, run out of water and, you know, dehydrated. (laughs) But but, but you're right. There, there are a lot of ghost stories uh, connected to the California and the Oregon trails and, uh, you know, buildings and homes and places, mostly places more than anything. That's kind of what you end up with at, at, Truckee Lake and Donner Lake now, but Mm -hmm. that's kind of what you end up with is, or were these stories. And, you know, I always wondered if early on, a lot of the stories that got started had more to do with the fact that people knew what happened there, because Um, as we've already discussed, we started this conversation talking about it being a cautionary tale, talking about it being a story that, that pioneers told other pioneers to move them along. So people knew what happened there and they knew they needed to make it over the mountains, you know, before the snow fell, they knew what happened if they got trapped. And so it, it's not surprising that ghost stories got started about the lake mm-hmm. about, you know, Oh, I bet some of the Donner's party is still here, which totally makes sense based on the things that happened. And so stories went around for a long time, long before it was ever turned into a park. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, a state park, that's, that's been, that was after the end of the 20th century. So even long before that, people were still talking about it. Uh, when the Lincoln Highway came through, when the railroad line was through there, people still talked about the ghost stories and talked about hearing things and seeing things there at Truckee Meadows and uh, around the lake. And the stories just continued and still continue. But I don't, I don't, I haven't heard anything recent at all. Um, mm-hmm. which makes me hope that maybe some of that stuff, and I think I said this at the end of the, at the uh, end of the episode, I, I kind of hope that those people got some peace, man. <laughs> I yeah. don't know that all of them did, but you'd like to think that maybe they did. I don't know. For sure. Yeah. It's a cautionary tale of a yeah. don't read books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they're wrong. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 That's a, I think that the, the adage about you, you know, don't believe everything you read had to have gotten started because of that book. Well, probably not, but still it should have <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, what's the point in him writing that book? And it, it was just to try to make some money. Real estate. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, he was okay. selling real estate and um, if he could get people there. Fa- well, I mean, okay. Essentially the book is about, and you can get copies of it now. Okay. I mean, there are reprints of it. Um, but the, the point of the book was to entice people to come to California and buy real estate. Mm. And so that's how he was making, how he was going to make money. He was a land speculator. So he'd buy up property and then he'd sell it off in parcels. I mean, that's how that all works. And he was trying to get people there with these glowing descriptions of the growing times and the, you know, the fruits and the vegetables that could be grown. Because, I mean, everybody was a farmer back then, for the most part. And if you weren't a farmer, you were selling stuff to farmers. So why not come to California, the land of sunshine and, you know, wonderful things. Um, but, you know, and to top it off, I'm even I've even got a shortcut for you. And then uh-huh. here it was. And so, I mean, the California trail came, but he, you know, he said that he could save, shave off time for people if they followed this route. All he did was sit down and look at some maps. <laughs> go, oh, well, this looks good. You know, I mean, work. yeah, this will work. I'll make this work. And so, you know, there had been people who'd taken the trail before the Donners who almost didn't survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, this guy finally takes the trail himself and keeps coming up with all these excuses as to, oh, well, wait a minute, you know, uh, whoops, I was a little off, you think, you know, 
So, yeah. And, you know, so a lot of people blamed him for what happened. Um, I mean, he does bear some fault, but the Reeds and the Donners, they they bought it. I mean, yeah. they, you know, they they followed it even after they were warned twice. Yeah. Once by a guy they knew that that Reed was really good friends with who told them, don't go that way. And then the next time by this mountain man who Edwin Bryant had met up with, and he says, dude, you can't go that way in a wagon. Mm-hmm. You've got to take mules. It's the only way you'll make it through. And so then he leaves a note for, you know, a letter behind for the Reeds and Donners and they ignore, well, they ignored everything. I mean, they, sure. they just did what they wanted and they were convinced by this book. So just and look how that turned out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stubbornness. Um, at some point someone ate that book so <laughs> <laughs> well i mean you know you can't find any grass or you yeah, know your there's glue holding the pages together back then they made glue from horses so right. eat the book yeah yeah it's like a horse lollipop um <laughs> all right anything else we didn't touch on or any no, other takeaways you think no i think we're good i i hope that like i said i the only my only regret about <laughs> the podcast is when i got <laughs> to it at the all. end what doing it at all doing starting it at it? all yeah when i got to the end of it and i was talking about tams and donner and um her ghost haunting that place i felt like in the podcast it didn't have the weight to it that i wished it would have mm. because i spent a lot more time in the book talking about tams and donner mm-hmm. and what a you know pretty remarkable person she was she was like the mother to like half the wagon train yeah even though she wasn't even that old people called her you know looked up to her as a mother figure you know and she was extremely smart and she wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote long long letters that she sent back to springfield describing the journey and but they were all lost they were sent back to this newspaper they published them and then they were storing the letters and there was a flood and it it destroyed all of the the saved letters that that they had of hers uh, so she's not as an important a figure in the podcast as she is in the book mm-hmm. and uh, that's my only regret but there's no way to tell this story in a succinct manner <laughs> and 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 some would question whether i even did that because it is over two hours <laughs> just of me talking so i'm not even sure how how concise i was but um i wished i wouldn't have had to have been con- as concise when it comes to her so and this is not just a way to try to get people to buy the book buy it don't buy it it's entirely up to you but um but she is i think a again a really important story the women have such an important part in the story and her especially so anyway that's that's my only regret so fair enough I hope people enjoyed it anyway. So. Yeah. Well, I'd like to give uh, some shout outs to our new subscribers on Patreon. So thank you to Jordan, Candace, and Ken for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. Yeah, we do. Because we are, we just finished, um, we just uh, uh, did see uh, episode number five of our Patreon only. Oh, yes. Yeah. So if you are just listening or have forgotten about this, we actually do another podcast in addition to this one, but you can only get it if you are a Patreon supporter. Um, it's called The Moonlight Murder, and it is about the murder of a farmer in Iowa in 1900 and the uh, all of the history and the crime connected with it and the ghost story will be at the end. But it's a 10 episode uh, podcast. And then when that one's over, I've already got the next one planned. So Beautiful. we 
continue to do these uh, from now on. So if you're a Patreon supporter, you can hear our other podcast. Um, and, you know, you can subscribe for, I mean, we'd love for you to do it for as much as you like, but you can subscribe for as little as $5 a month and get the other podcast, two episodes and, um, and help support the show. Cause it's, um, it, it has really helped us a lot. Uh, with equipment and all kinds of things. So um, if you're interested in that, go to patreon.com slash American Hauntings, and you can find out more about that. And um, so anyway, I'm sorry, I just I just took over that whole thing. Oh, you mentioned that- Patreon, I got excited. I'm like, ooh, 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 I just did another episode. <laughs> No, you're fine. And now since Troy's funny voices and things too. Yeah, yeah. Troy does some some vocal Character acting. Voices. And uh yeah. now he's asked Cody me. Cody does in, sound effects. Yeah. So now that I'm putting in sound effects, it takes just about as long as our regular episodes. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Uh, but no, it's really fun. I like the sound effects for the last episode we just did. I thought that they came out yeah, really they were well. Great. Getting better at it and finding some cool stuff. Yeah. Um yeah, uh, well, it is now time for our Ghostwriter segment. So if you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. This email comes to us from Erica. The subject is love the show. It says, I've been listening. Or, Hi, Troy and Cody. I've been listening since the first season. I know you always talk about how bad the audio is for the first <laughs> episodes, but that has not changed the quality of the content. Thank you. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> as, a, as a history nerd, I appreciate the research and effort Troy puts into the stories. The second half with Cody and Troy is a great break from the more heavy content of the episode. Thank you for a great show. I listen to each what episode. Mean heavy? These aren't heavy. No, we're talking about eating people. Stop joking. That's a joke. They're horrible. They're horribly heavy. <laughs> you shouldn't listen to these. Um, don't let your children listen. Uh, I listened to each episode at least twice, told you I was a nerd. Also, on the last episode, Troy mentioned going to Galena, Illinois for a conference. My friend and I are planning a trip to explore Galena. Do you have any suggestions? Thanks again for the great show, Erica. I hope that they, this is an older email because we had a kind of a backlog. So I hope they haven't taken that trip yet. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. But, well, um, if they did, they probably couldn't miss the haunted galena tour which is what i recommend some um good friends of mine the ones that organize that conference do that tour and um they um they do a really good job with that and they do some uh, other things associated with it so if you want to hook up with ghost stuff that's the place to go they have a shop um right on the main street there um and they they can I mean, it's just a couple of doors down from the DeSoto House Hotel, which you can't miss. Great big old historic hotel right on the main street in town. And they can not only hook you up with a good tour, but they can also hook you up with other stuff going on in town. It is a fun place. Um, I will tell you, though, that if you go there on a weekend and it's busy and it will be busy all summer, they're always busy. Um Always get on open table, make dinner reservations. Don't mm. don't not do it. Don't hope for the best or you'll be waiting all night. Um, any place that takes them, um, definitely worth eating at. We had several really good restaurants up there. So I I really recommend it. So um, but yeah, Galena's a lot of fun. Um, so you'll have a good time. Awesome. If you haven't already gone. Yeah. And if you have, then I hope you had a great time. <laughs> yeah, my bad, Erica, if you've already gone. Um, but I hope not. And I hope you guys have a great time. All right, man. That's all I got. Okay. Well, I guess we should probably wrap things up. Um, don't forget, um, use the podcast discount code at AmericanHauntings.net. Uh, if you're looking for books or events or dinners or tours or whatever, um, put that code in and you can get 10% off. So essentially you make money listening to the show. Yes. This can be your passive income. It is. Yes. There you go. So Anyway, I guess that's it, man. So we will, uh, we got the conference coming up um, before our next episode. 
So uh, we will wow. talk to you after the uh, the Haunted America conference. And I will probably have to record it beforehand. So we're not going to try to fool you to go. Oh boy, we're so tired from the conference. <laughs> we're we're going to record it before the conference. So you can have to hear more about the conference in July because <laughs> yes. June 28th, there's no way we're going to be able to record between the conference and when the next episode comes. So and then we're try to do that in advance. <laughs> then we're getting we're getting the hell out of here. We're going on vacation. Yep, we are. So in July, we will be gone. So we'll, we'll have got some other stuff we got to get figured out between now and then because we don't want to get off schedule and want to make sure that the show doesn't last, you know, or the season doesn't last beyond 2022. <laughs> <laughs> That's the goal. We'll see. Our goal is to, damn it, finish this season one way or another. Yes. <laughs> so, All right. Well, this Thanks, episode guys. of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor and it was produced oh, and edited oh, by me, right into it. Cody Beck. Yeah, you know, no more oh. banter. I think the, they, okay. they've earned it. That's fine. Yeah, you know, we didn't do this last week. What's you that? did realize that, right? What? We didn't do this. The, oh, yeah. The I think I figured week. since it was like such a different kind of episode. Yeah, it was I, a little odd. So, yeah. yeah, I guess it went last week, but the last episode. So. Yeah. Anyway, I, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you're I mean, good. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Ha ha. <laughs> <You know. laughs> LOL. Music for this season is performed by Packy Lundholm, and you can find more about his music and upcoming shows on Twitter, Instagram, Bandcamp, SoundCloud, and Facebook. Well, we will see his wife. Oh, yeah. And yeah, and not, and, but not Packy. I'm still not. No, convinced. no, not Packy. I've seen him on Facebook Live, but I'm still not convinced he's a real person. Um, <laughs> I'll believe it when I shake the man's hand. But okay, you can find us on most of those places too. Plus, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere that you listen to your favorite podcast. Find the website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for more info about the show, notes, photos, links, and more. Thanks for listening. We couldn't and probably wouldn't. No, we, we wouldn't. We, 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 yeah, we, we should probably just change that. This show <laughs> is brought to you by listeners like you. Yes. So, um, so yeah, if any of those listeners want to jump in and start helping with the editing load, that's <laughs> yeah. that would be. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, hey, yeah, that, you know what? Hey, man, you got to edit it, but I have to do it. So I have to write it and perform it. So true. It is. A, I think we balance out. And you oh, hey, I'm not complaining. I'm not saying that. Uh, whatever. I, oh, actually, I listened today to the second half um, just cool. so I could like because I was like, oh, in yeah, the yeah, car sure. for a long time. So I was like, why yeah. not? And <laughs> this one is going to take me a minute. I'm going to get started right after this. There is a little. Um, yeah, I had some <laughs> you, issues. With you this. got mad. It was fun. I did. I really did. I don't <laughs> even know what was going on. I, I did. There there were a couple of times I was not happy you're like you're like there's not even any mistakes here i just can't read yeah, yeah I, I keep thinking do i have a typo in here no i just can't read oh <laughs> uh, well I'll good thing you're you a writer i'll tell you exactly what it was what, what was i it? learned my lesson i know we're supposed to be done no, you're fine. i have my phone on a charger on my desk and every time that screen would light up mm. it would distract me yeah and it's like, why didn't I just throw the phone across the room sure. at about the 10 minute mark? Although, you know, at first I didn't have any mistakes, but then I realized it's because my phone wasn't lighting up. So never again, it, the phone is going somewhere else far away while I record these things. No, uh, that's that's a good call. I have to do the same thing. Like when I'm editing the God. show, if you have like a long stretch, then sometimes like I'll be on my phone and then I'll hear you like say like, oh fuck. And I'm like, oh wait, and I gotta put my phone <laughs> yeah, down. Like, I go, God damn it. You yeah, know, so. I can't have my phone near me either. I just get yeah, oh, wow. so distracted. Oh, finish it up. I'm sorry. We have literally the last line. So. <laughs> Until next time. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. So long, see you later. <laughs>
<laughs> uh, okay. I'm going to stop this recording. Okay.